Now, the good news is one of the requirements for being forgiven by Jesus is that you have to be a sinner. So we all qualify. The question is, We're in John chapter 11. Uh, we're going to be finishing up the chapter this evening. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've been in John chapter 11. And uh, tonight we get the meat of it, the thing we've been building towards. Now, I think it's really easy to skip over the last two weeks of what we talked about. Because the event that we're Discovering today in Scripture is huge. It's monumental. You can't get past it or over it or across it. It's a big deal. But leading up to this moment, you saw a lot of relationships and how people who really knew Jesus interacted with him. How they trusted him because of what he could do and their relationship and closeness that they had with him and also how they weren't afraid to be honest and lay the truth at his feet when tragedy struck. And what we saw was Mary and Martha, two sisters who lost their brother, who they loved, who Jesus loved, Lazarus. Lazarus has been dead now for four days. And they, they don't like that Jesus wasn't there. They know that Jesus could have stopped it if he was there. And that's the confrontation, and that's the tension that exists. And we're going to see a lot tonight. We're going to see a foreshadowing of amazing events and the power of Jesus completely revealed. But we're also going to see the reaction to it. Now, I think of it this way. Now, Kara, my, my daughter, she's a toddler. And there are times where she does not want stuff to happen. She does not like it if it's time to get changed, if it's time to go to bed, um, if it's time to eat. She doesn't want to be strapped into a high chair. And she does this thing where she runs away as fast as she can, but she always puts herself in a corner which is not very effective if you think you're going to divert the will of your father. Because I'm bigger than her, and I can pick her up and put her where she needs to go. And you know what? I have her best interest at heart. She needs to eat. That's just how, that's how you live. If you don't, you don't live. She needs to be changed or she can get an infection for just me letting her wander around in her filth. I'm taking care of her, even when she doesn't like it. But she will back herself into a corner trying to get away from the thing that needs to be done. And even if she's not on the same page as me, what has to happen will happen. Keep that story in mind as we go through tonight's scripture. So we're picking up in verse 38. Now, this is right after Jesus is openly weeping because 
He's in the presence of the tomb that Lazarus is buried in. Now, I do want to say that that's a pretty powerful picture. Now, Jesus, who knows the future, he already predicted what would happen. He already told his disciples several days ago what he was going to do. Um, He said, let's stay here for two days because Lazarus is sleeping and I'm going to go so that you may see the glory of God. He already told them what he was going to do. He knows what's going to happen. And isn't it amazing that a God who sees eternity can also feel empathy for you in the moment? Even though he sees the end from the beginning, he can experience the moment with you. And that's the beauty of a God who became flesh. But this is that moment. He is weeping openly, and the people have said, isn't it amazing how much Jesus loves this man? But there were a few in the crowd who basically said, um, he's healed the blind. He could have stopped this from happening. And that's where we pick up in verse 38. It says, then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Now, this is odd. He's been dead for four days. This is not the appropriate time to view the body. You're going to find out why. Martha's response was this. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead for four days. If you read it in the King James, real funny, it says, Lord, he stinketh. But this is so common of Martha. Now, Martha might be thinking at this time, she just saw Jesus' grief, his open weeping, and she might be thinking he needs comfort and he just wants to see the body one last time. Just wants to see Lazarus one last time. He needs that closure to say goodbye. It, It is the reason that in Today, in age, we often have open casket funerals. It gives us a chance to say goodbye. I remember the first funeral that I ever experienced as a young man um, was one of my grandfathers. He had passed away, and it was an odd sight. I didn't understand what was happening. There was an open casket, and my grandfather was there. He looked like he could move at any moment. But at the same time, it it wasn't my grandfather. He wasn't jovial. He wasn't wearing his flannel shirt. He was wearing a suit, which was so odd. And he didn't have the pipe in his mouth, and he didn't smell like cherry tobacco. That was my grandfather. But I was just there waiting for him to move because I didn't know how to say goodbye. And that was my first experience. And maybe this is what Martha is thinking. She needs to see him to say goodbye. Now Martha is, as usual, trying to take care of everyone. She's trying to take care of Jesus, which is, how do you do that? But she says, he's, there's a stench. He's been dead for four days. We cannot open this door. But Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And Jesus says, I got this. When they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, 
But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they might believe that you sent me. This is an interesting moment. Jesus is praying to the Father. And he even says, thank you for listening to me. And then he says, I know that you always listen to me. I'm saying this so that everyone else can understand the authority that you give me. I'm saying this so that everyone can understand the connection I have with God the Father. And then he says, he said, when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Why is Jesus speaking loudly and screaming at the top of his lungs and telling people what his plan is? Well, he's doing, a, he's conveying a message to everyone. First of all, he doesn't want there to be any ambiguity of what's going on here. Everyone can smell the smell. They know Lazarus is dead. They know that Lazarus has been dead for four days. Because back then, unlike now, funerals were not hushed tones in silence. They would even often pay professionals to come and wail and openly cry so that the grief could be heard by the town. So for four days, people have known that someone's gone. But Jesus is screaming out loud and telling everyone what's going on so that they know that the authority he is claiming is from God the Father, so that they know he is God the Son. And he also says out loud, Lazarus, come forth, because he didn't want any ambiguity. He wanted people to know what he was saying. He wanted them to know that he was telling Lazarus to step out of the tomb. But he also wanted to make sure that no one thought he was trying to perform witchcraft, because that would have been done in a hushed tone. He's saying, this authority comes directly from God, and I'm not mincing words, and you can hear it. And so he says, Lazarus, come forth, and he who died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Lazarus walks out of the tomb all wrapped up. Now, they would have wrapped linen cloths all the way around him, basically pasted in things that smell good to try to keep the stench down to prepare the body for burial. And all that stuff they would have wrapped on the linen cloth would have dried and gotten stuck to Lazarus. And so he walks up out of the tomb with all this stuff on him. And Jesus says, cut him loose. Let him go. He's no longer dead. He's alive. And everyone sees this. Now, this is the amazing part. Lazarus has been dead for four days. Jesus is proclaiming authority over death. Now, Jesus has raised two other people from the grave. He's raised a young girl and a servant. But the stories there were that they had recently died. This one, there's no confusion. Lazarus has been dead for four days. He smells. The tomb has been sealed. He's been wrapped up in grave clothes and covered his mouth. This man was gone, and he has shown to the world, his authority over death. But what a different picture it is from Jesus' resurrection. Because Lazarus comes out 
all mummified with his linen cloths on and his grave clothes still on. But when Jesus is resurrected, the linen cloths are still in the temp are still in the tomb. And there's no body there. Because Jesus was able to escape them in his glorified body. And so this is setting the tone. He is telling the world he has authority over death. And he has authority over death even after four days. So it's not a shock when Jesus raises himself from the dead after three. But his circumstances are even more amazing. He was able to escape himself out of those clothes, those grave clothes, those linen cloths that were dried to him, likely because of the exalted banner of Jesus' new body. Now, when I say new body, just so you know, it's not a new person, a new body. It's a body that's been made new, that's been resurrected and glorified to a new state. But it's the same body. But verse 45, we, we pick up. Now, this amazing thing has happened. A dead man has walked out of a grave. There's been wailing and weeping for four days. Now, all of a sudden, there's joy. His family is happy. No one can believe what's going on. Um, and this miracle has happened. It wasn't quiet. Jesus was shouting at the top of his lungs. Everyone knows what happened. Everyone in the town knew who Lazarus was, knew that he was dead, and now he's walking around, and now there's a response. Verse 45, many of the Jews who had come to Mary had seen the things Jesus did and believed in him. That makes sense. If you, were, if you lived in a town and you knew a family had just buried someone four days ago, and you were there, and you heard the weeping, and now four days later, that guy's walking around that died, and you saw Jesus, and you heard Jesus tell him to walk out of the tomb, and he walked out of the tomb, you'd probably believe in him too. That's really good evidence. What's shocking is that it's just many, and not all. Because in verse 46, we find out some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do for this man works many signs? This is an odd coupling. We saw some people who were a little offended at what happened. They weren't sure what to make of it. They go and they tell the temple councils. And now the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two groups who oppose each other and argue all the time, are now trying to work together against Jesus. Because they don't know what to do with someone who can raise the dead. So verse 48, they say, If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Now they're concerned and they're worried not only about people following Jesus, but about Rome attacking Israel because of what Jesus is doing. Someone who has this kind of power is not going to sit well with the Roman authorities. And now one of them says something unbelievable. One of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. Now this, he did not say on his own authority, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied 
that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So Caiaphas, the high priest of the Jews, he says something without realizing his intent. He doesn't know the whole story. He's only experiencing the moment, and he's rejecting who Jesus is, and he's trying to end Jesus. And his response is, wouldn't it be better for us to kill him for the sake of Israel? Let's kill Jesus because that will save the nation from Roman incursion. That's what he thinks he's saying. He thinks he's protecting the people of Israel from Jesus' power by working together with the Pharisees and the Sadducees to have Jesus killed for the sake of military invasion. But John says that he was unaware that he was prophesying Jesus' future. That Jesus was not dying for the sake of military incursion, but actually dying for the sake of us, for the nation of Israel and the children who would be called to God. He said, together in one, the children of God who were scattered abroad, the Gentiles who would come to know Jesus. But after saying this, it says, then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness. They called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. Or he walked, he into a, a country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. Now the Passover of the, of the Jews was near. And many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone know where he was, they should report it and that they might seize him. So from that point forward, from Lazarus' resurrection that Jesus performed, the chief priests and the Pharisees at the behest of Caiaphas, the high priest, are now looking to kill Jesus. And we know some time passed because Jesus was wandering in the wilderness near a city called Ephraim. But eventually we get close to the Passover. And as the Passover is approaching, they know that it's a command to come to Jerusalem to worship God, and they expect Jesus will be there. And they put out an order. If anyone sees him, they have to tell us where he is. Because we're going to put an end to this. Now this, to me, is what's amazing. Caiaphas, he reminds me of Kara trying to run away from what the father needs to do but he puts himself in a corner. He doesn't realize that where he's taking things is exactly where God needs them to go. It's prophesied that the Messiah will be cut off. That's prophesied in Daniel 7, that he would die for the sins of the people. It's talked about in Isaiah 53, about how he would be crushed for our iniquities. And he's playing right into the hand of God, trying to run from it. Now this reminds me of two different kings. They were both talked to by two different prophets. Now the first one is Pharaoh. We don't know which Pharaoh, but 
there was this Pharaoh who enslaved the Israelites. And a prophet from God named Moses came and told him that it, he needed to let the Israelites go. And God was going to protect the Israelites and bring them to the promised land of Israel, and he was going to give them the inheritance that was promised to Abraham. But the obstacle was Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh stood in God's way, and he believed he could object to God. And the story goes like this. Pharaoh three times hardened his own heart against God, rejected the ability for the Jews to be let go out of the land of Egypt. And it got to a point where God had been fed up with his rejection, and then God hardens his, own, his heart, Pharaoh's heart, and rains down judgment on Pharaoh. And what happens is eventually the last judgment on Pharaoh is this, to finally get his attention to let the people go. God says, I'm going to bring down judgment on you. This is the judgment. And it's mirrored judgment to what the Egyptians did to the Israelites. When Moses was born, Pharaoh put out an order to kill all of the male children under two years old to prevent an uprising from the Israelites. They were afraid that they were going to be outnumbered by their slaves. And so to protect themselves and their authority, they killed the Hebrew children. And now the final judgment that God is going to place on Pharaoh to release the Israelites, Moses goes and tells him, and he says, this is what God's going to do. If you don't let us go, the angel of death is going to come tonight. And when it does, the firstborn son of every household in Egypt will die. Now God told the Israelites what to do to prevent death. He told Moses to paint blood on the post and lentils of the door when the angel of death came. And when it did, if it saw the blood of the lamb, the angel would pass over and instead of death, your family gets life. But the Egyptians didn't do that. And they received death. And Pharaoh was so brokenhearted that he finally let the people go and his knee was bent to God's will. And as they were wandering off in the desert, they came to the edge of the Red Sea as they're on their way to the promised land. And Pharaoh changes his mind again. And he doesn't put trust or faith in the God that has rained down judgment on him and caused failure in Egypt. And he says, no, I'm going to take it upon myself to stand up to God. And he wages war. He brings an army of chariots out to meet the people at the Red Sea, to meet the Israelites, and he's going to get his slaves back. And what does God do? God opens up the Red Sea, and the Israelites pass through it. And when the Egyptians follow, God closes in the sea on the Egyptian army. And Pharaoh loses. As he's standing on one side of the Red Sea, the Israelites are on the other, and he has no hope for victory. He cornered himself. He put himself in a situation where he would only reject God. But God's plan refused to change. Just because you reject him doesn't mean you have authority over him and God's plan will not change. Now there's another king that this reminds me of and his name is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar continually rejected God and his prophet was named Daniel. Daniel gave him an understanding of the authority that Nebuchadnezzar had and what he was to do. He even told him about a dream. 
There was this dream of a statue with four different metals, and Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold, but there's going to be a succession of kingdoms after you that are going to take over you. And Nebuchadnezzar took objection to this. He thought he was the most powerful man and his kingdom would reign forever. So he makes a replica of that statue. But instead of it being made of four metals, Nebuchadnezzar makes it out of gold, the one that represented Babylon. As in a complete rejection of God's authority, saying, I'm the one who has the authority, I choose. But God kept going after Nebuchadnezzar just like he went after Pharaoh. And multiple times, Nebuchadnezzar rejects Daniel, just like Pharaoh rejected Moses. But one time, Nebuchadnezzar gets sent out into the wilderness and loses his mental faculties, just like Daniel said he would. And when he gets himself back together, he understands and finally bends the knee to God. And he tells the people of Babylon that Daniel's God is the only one worth worshiping. Both those kings rejected God and painted, put themselves in a corner, and God's plan would not be interrupted. But one of them chose to be on the right team at the end. This is how I view it. And I'm going to try to help illustrate this in a way that you can understand. There are two things competing here, and we often treat them as the same. There's God's plan and God's will. Now, God's will leads to his plan, of course, but there's two separate things. This is how I look at it. If you view the earth from space, it's this beautiful blue and green orb. It looks like a perfect circle. In fact, if you shrunk the earth down to the size of a cue ball, it would be infinitely smoother than a cue ball because it's so perfectly round with so few imperfections. It looks perfect. It's beautiful. And that reminds me of God's plan. It's perfect. It's smooth. You can't interrupt it. But then when you zoom in and you zoom in on the earth, what you find out is there's a whole bunch of us trying to mess with God's will. And we can do a lot. We can climb mountains and we can go into valleys. We can dig ditches and we can build skyscrapers. We can touch the clouds with the things that we build. We can even send things out into space. We can do so much, but everything we do, when you zoom out, the earth still looks like a perfect circle. And as much as we affect the landscape, when you zoom out, the plan didn't change. The only question is, which side are you gonna be on? Because for Pharaoh, he ended up in judgment and he ended up in a position of being cursed, where Nebuchadnezzar ended up in a position of being blessed because he finally bent the knee to God's will. God's plan was going to exist no matter where he stood. No matter where you go, you're going to put yourself in a corner and you can't get out of the Father's reach. The question is, will you be on his team and a part of his story? following his will, because when his plan comes to perfection, you can be on his side, or you can be cursed because you've rejected him. And those two kings did that. Now Caiaphas, interestingly, has no idea what he's saying. He thinks he's protecting the people from a military invasion, 
And he's painting him and the Pharisees and the Sadducees into a corner. And all they're doing is fulfilling God's plan. As they're rejecting him and rejecting his plan, they're causing it to happen. They're setting up all of the dominoes so that the fulfillment of prophecies can happen so that the Messiah can do what God has said he would do. In Isaiah 53, it says, by his wounds we will be healed, by his stripes. And the whipping and scourging of Jesus before the crucifixion fulfills that. The crucifixion fulfills in Psalm 22 when it says that his hands and feet would be pierced. It fulfills in Daniel 9 when it says that the Messiah would be cut off for the people's sins. Everything they do puts themselves in a corner. You can't get out of the Father's reach. The question is whether you want to be his left hand or his right hand, the hand of judgment or the hand of blessing. And that choice is yours. You get to mess with God's will. You can choose to be for it or against it, but God's plan will not change. And this is a perfect example of it. Now here's the everything in a nutshell. I want to tell you a quick story. There, there was a young preacher who once filled in for Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon sat in the audience while this young preacher took his place for a week. And afterwards, he was so excited to hear feedback from Spurgeon. How could you not? We still talk about him today. He's called the Prince of Preachers. How could you not want to hear what he has to say about your sermon? And so the young man goes up to Charles Spurgeon and he says, What'd you think? And Charles Spurgeon, in his fashion, tells him it was atrocious. And the young man is defeated. He says, what do you mean? He said, didn't I, didn't I do a good job of explaining the events that happened in the scripture? And Charles Spurgeon says, yeah, you did. Well, what did I do wrong? Did, did I not expound on what happened there? Did I not explain the events well? And Spurgeon says, no, you got everything right. Well, why was it bad? And Spurgeon responds, because you didn't preach Christ. And the young man said, but Christ wasn't in the passage. And he says, you're so naive. That is our job. Christ is in everything from Genesis to Revelation. And now Caiaphas is the one and the the Pharisees and the Sadducees are the ones who miss out on the fact that the, the prophecies and the scriptures that they hold dear to speak about Jesus, and they're completely blinded to it. But even being blinded to it, all they do is cause it to happen. And so today, I preach Christ. He came to fulfill his duty which was the cross and the resurrection. He paid the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. That's the only payment that God will take for our sin. And so we have a choice. Is it our death that will pay for our sin? Or is it Jesus' death? Do we stand and accept and repent from our sins and give our lives to Jesus so that he can pay our debt? That's why he died.
because that's the payment that's required for sin. Will we accept that payment or will we say no thank you for the free gift and try to make the payment on our own and see how we stack up against God's law? Because we don't. Now the good news is, one of the requirements for being forgiven by Jesus is that you have to be a sinner. So we all qualify. The question is, do we repent from it and follow him or do we reject him? Because God's plan is going to come full circle. Which hand do we want to be sitting on? Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this story. Thank you for the fact that Jesus is constantly pointing out to us that he has authority over death, including ours. Help us to choose rightly, to repent from our sin and choose him and accept his authority over our lives. God, I pray that this gospel reaches those who need to hear it and they come to you because your plan is inevitable. But whether or not we will bend to your will, you give us free will for that. I pray we make the wise choice and choose you and choose to sit on your right hand of blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.